Hi, everyone, and welcome to the New Atlantis Ocean Podcast, the podcast that covers everything going on in the vast world of ocean biodiversity. New Atlantis is tackling the twin challenges of biodiversity loss and climate change by aligning community, government, industry, and individual benefit with the improving ecological health of our oceans. I'm JJ Ramberg. Today, I have the very fun job of getting to talk to Chad Nelson, marine biologist, ocean conservationist, fisherman, lifeguard surfer, and the CEO of the Surfrider Foundation. We met about a year ago to talk about where Surfrider and New Atlantis could work with each other, and I have been waiting ever since then to launch this podcast so that I could get him for just an hour to talk just about the work he's doing because he has done so, so very much. Chad, it is so great to talk to you again. Hey, thank you for having me. Oh, it's so fun. It was so fun meeting you. And I can't wait for you to just tell your stories because you have so many of them. (laughs) Yeah, looking forward to it. So before we launch into what you're doing now, I'd love to just hear your story about what the ocean means to you and how you became this kind of kid and then man of the ocean. (laughs) Yeah, you know, I... I had had the sort of extraordinary privilege of, you know, basically growing up at the beach and in the ocean my whole life. I was born on Long Island near Jones Beach. You know, my dad and my mom were ocean people in New York. Then I moved to a small island, but they moved and brought me to a small island in the South Pacific called Saipan in Micronesia. I was there from two and a half to four and a half. My dad was teaching high school science on this island, which is an American territory. So I don't even remember, like, you know, a lot of people talk about their first experience with the ocean and how meaningful it was. And for me, I don't even remember that. It was just always present. From there, I grew up in Laguna Beach, small beach town in Southern California. So I just, you know, I've been in and amongst the ocean my my entire life and, um, you know, was a lifeguard, surfer, fisherman, as you mentioned. And so my dad was an ocean science educator. My brother was a pro surfer and now teaches surfing to kids. So, you know, it's meant everything to me. And uh, that's ultimately why I decided to sort of get involved in trying to give back and protect it. Yeah. How does this love of the ocean, because I live in Southern California and I'm surrounded by a bunch of people who love the ocean and what it brings to them. But how does that turn into a career in conserving the ocean? Well, it's funny because, you know, I grew up and my brothers made a career out of surfing. My dad is a marine science educator and teaching marine biology. And so you would think it would have been kind of obvious to me how to create a career, you know, with the ocean. For whatever reason, it really wasn't, you know, as a lifeguard, some of my buddies stuck with that and are career lifeguards. But I I wanted to do something a little bit more, um, I guess, sort of stimulating and, and not that that's not a great and important profession. But, you know, it wasn't actually until I went to grad school. I went to Duke as a Duke University as a coastal environmental management program. And one of my dad's friends, a mentor of mine, suggested I took a look at it. And I was like, wait, there's a grad school program where you can study the ocean, like the science and the policy. And it kind of opened this door to all these careers that are out there, ranging from nonprofit conservation, like I'm doing, to fisheries management, ports management, coastal planning. I was like, oh, they're are a ton of jobs. And so that was in my 20s. That was kind of when I realized there's all kinds of careers you can make around the ocean. And why'd you choose the one you did? Why'd you choose the path you chose? 
You know, I think I did what a lot of sort of young professionals and students do, which I highly recommend, which is I did a bunch of internships and fellowships. So I tried a bunch of things out. I worked for the state of Oregon's coastal zone management program. So it's like coastal planning. I worked for the federal government, the USGS, US Geological Survey. I had a fellowship with NOAA, the National Ocean and Atmosphere Administration. So I tried a bunch of different things. And I did a summer internship with Surfrider while I was in grad school. And I just fell in love with it. And I worked at a couple other, volunteered at a couple other nonprofits, like Natural Resource Defense Council. And I was like, okay, this NGO work, I think, is the most exciting and interesting for me. And at Surfrider, you know, the, the science, the policy, the advocacy was great. But what really sort of turned me on about Surfrider was it's this grassroots kind of people orientation. You know, we need science, we need uh, policy, we need law, but we also need people. And Surfrider is particularly good at, at getting people involved in, in conservation. So I love that aspect of it and was lucky enough to get a job now 25 years ago, which I cannot believe when we were just a small little organization doing this work. And I haven't stopped. It's been just a thrill and satisfying and impactful. So I feel really lucky. Well, clearly, not that many people stay at jobs 25 years anymore. No, it's very <laughs> unusual and kind of weird. <laughs> <laughs> when I used to work at NBC News at, you know, 10 years, they would give you um, a catalog and you'd get to choose the prize that you got for being there that long. <laughs> yeah, you know, sadly, no Rolex watches for 25 <laughs> years as Surfrider, but uh, a lot of a lot of great experiences and a lot of impact on the coast, which I'll take. I think you've given your prize to the world, actually. <laughs> Talk about Surfrider. Tell the audience what it does and what its mission is. Sure. The Surfrider Foundation is a grassroots coastal and ocean conservation organization. You know, at the highest level, we focus on clean water and healthy beaches. We have 200 chapters and clubs across the U.S. and affiliates in eight different countries. And it's really about getting folks who love the ocean surfers, ocean recreationalists, beachgoers, you know, everyday people who care involved in conservation. And that could range from beach cleanup to, uh, you know, lobbying Congress to pass a federal bill or uh, suing somebody who's violating the law. And so it's really just about building a, you know, kind of grassroots community movement to protect our ocean waves and beaches. And you have 80 chapters, am I right? Yeah. In the we U.S.? Have- We have 80 chapters in the U.S., and so these are sort of mostly volunteer-led, community-based chapters. They're on all coasts, Hawaii, Great Lakes, and Puerto Rico, Gulf of Mexico. So we cover almost the entire coast of the U.S. And uh, yeah, and you know, those chapters are working in their community to be stewards of the ocean waves and beaches in their town, and then we can kind of scale that work up to the state or the federal level. I want to talk about some of your big successes in a second, but before that, how do you get people, everyone loves the ocean, right? Almost everyone loves the ocean. Yeah. If you have had a chance to be on a beach, you love the ocean. Right. How do you turn that enjoyment, right? I like to go swimming or surfing, what have you, into this is a cause that I'm passionate about. And I understand that if I don't do something personally, this is going to go away, right? It's, yeah. It is, I find it hard, particularly because a lot of what happens in the ocean, people can't see. Yep. And so I'd love to know what triggers you use to make people realize, hey, you have a personal responsibility to help here too. Yeah, no, you bring up a good point. I talk about this all the time. You know, the ocean can be in terrible shape 
And if you're, you know, having a glass of wine or a beer on your bluff, looking at the sunset, it looks perfectly blue and beautiful on top regardless. So there is a little bit of a challenge kind of helping people understand that there is this, you know, this crisis or this, these challenges facing the ocean. But I think the thing, you know, once you kind of educate people, and I think we actually have an abusive relationship with the ocean generally as people, and that's something, you know, we need to change. We dump a lot of things in the ocean, wastewater, plastic pollution. You know, if we treat it, I always say if we, if we treated our local parks the way we treat our ocean, there'd be outrage in your community. You know, if, yeah. if you went down to the local park and it was like, well, we only have a sewage spill once a month in the park that closes it for three days. And you can't go to the park after it rains for three days. And yeah, watch out for the plastic. We would be marching down to City Hall and uh, demanding that they they clean it up. And I think part of that is just this fact that it's harder to see and observe. But, you know, we, we try to educate people about the the challenges. One of the most interesting and simple things we do is we do beach cleanups. Mm-hmm. We're kind of known for beach cleanups. And if you go down to the beach and you do a beach cleanup, a lot of people think we're trying to do that to actually solve the plastic pollution problem, which mm-hmm. it's a part of it, but you'll never beach clean your, your way out of this problem. What it really is, is an awareness building tool. People go down to the beach and like, wow, look at all of this stuff. Millions and millions of tiny pieces of styrofoam, bottle caps, bags, straws, cups, wrappers, most of the time. And then if, even if the beach looks clean and you use a sieve, you find microplastics, you know, by the hundreds and thousands. And so usually that's a wake up. People say, oh, wow, I get it. This plastic pollution problem is real. How do I get involved? And that's really the second part. A lot of these issues, climate change, plastic pollution, they feel so big mm-hmm. that people don't know where to start. And so by breaking it down into little incremental steps and making those impactful and meaningful and providing opportunities for people, I think that's what gets people engaged. They come to a beach cleanup, they pick up some trash and they feel good about it. And they say, what more can I do? You know, and if we provide them an opportunity to get involved with local advocacy in their community, you know, write a letter to their congressman, come to D.C. with us and and advocate for change there's sort of a pathway of, of activism that starts with little things and gets more sophisticated. And the other thing is, and there's a lot of research about volunteerism that shows that people want it to be organized, mm-hmm. impactful, and ultimately fun, and then community building. So if you can get those ingredients together, which we do a pretty good job of, people come back. An example that I give is, I don't know if you've ever been to a city council meeting to advocate for a bill or for a law. You know, we just banned balloons, helium balloons, lighter than air balloons in my town in Laguna Beach. And so, you know, to get that done, um, there's some research and you, you know, work with the city council and get a bill drafted. And then you go to a city council meeting. They're usually, you know, Tuesday at 630. And you go down there and you might be down there for four hours waiting for your agenda item to come up. And then you usually have about three minutes to give testimony, which, you know, is nerve wracking for a lot of people. You're up at the podium in front of important looking people in front of you. It's not that fun. But if you're there with 15 of your friends and you've been working on this and you're high fiving each other and strategizing and trying to figure out how many votes you have and, you know, you either win or lose that day and you go have a beer or dinner afterwards, you've taken what is a mundane, not very sexy, very interesting process, 
and turned it into a community event where it feels good and you see your friends. And if you win, you high five and feel like you just, you know, won a game Yep, and made a difference. And so, you know, that's just an example of, you know, ways you can turn um, these kind of mundane activities into something fun and meaningful. It's brilliant. I think about how many work all-nighters I have that are some of my most fun memories because you were all in there together working for something and then it turned out at the end. You have this great story. I mean, great in that it's shocking, but it's depressing of when you were younger, seeing a truck backing up to the ocean. And I'd love you to share this with people because I think it follows the story you were talking about our local parks and how we would be outraged if the things that were happening to the ocean yeah. were happening to the parks. That's right. And it, it is kind of like back to this idea that we have this abusive relationship with the ocean. You know, for too long, we've treated it like a you know place where we can dispose of things and they'll disappear. And, you know, I think there was a time when there were, we felt like the oceans were too vast to be impacted and certainly not the case anymore, we know. Yeah, so when I was in high school, I think maybe early college days, I was lifeguarding down at the beach. So sitting on the lifeguard tower, it was 10 in the morning and there's nobody down there. So I'm kind of just waiting for the crowds to come by myself. And um, I watch a bulldozer, front loader, big front loader with the big yellow sort of, uh, you know, scoop in the front drive down off the street and onto the beach, which is not that common, uh, and drove straight to the ocean. I'm kind of sitting there watching this thing, wondering what in the world this guy's doing. It never occurred to me what he was up to. And he pulls right up to the water where it's sloshing up and down in the sand, and he dumps the front loader into the ocean, and it was full of, like, yellow paint. And they were painting the streets in the neighborhood the yellow stripes on the streets. And so I guess this was the excess paint at the end of the process. I don't know why I was doing it at, you know, 10 in the morning, maybe because he thought no one was, would be around to see. And um, so he just dumps the thing and then he's moving the front loader up and down in the sand. He uses the sand on the beach to kind of clean out the front loader. And meanwhile, this, I don't know how many gallons, hundreds of gallons of paint, you know, just creates this giant yellow plume in the, in the ocean. Unbelievable. Yeah. And it was just startling, obviously illegal, you know, and I called it in and it was a city contractor or whatever it was, you know, and it, I think they you know, probably got cited. But for me, it was just one of these things like, oh, so this guy who's cutting corners, you know, has to get rid of this paint. And he's just like, oh, well, the ocean's right there. Uh, you know, he may not have even had any malicious intent. He might have just been unaware that, you know, that was not OK. I don't know. But, um, you know, it's kind of this one of these wake up calls where I'm like, all right, we need to do a better job of thinking about how we treat the ocean. And I'd like to think that that was, you know, whatever it was, the 70s or the 80s. And yeah, 80s. The, the vast majority. Uh -oh. Sorry, I didn't mean to take <laughs> you. Know, it's fine, it's fine. You know, that was like the 40s. <laughs> <laughs> um, I'd like to think that we know better than yeah. to think that that possibly happens now. But that kind of stuff absolutely still happens now. And that is clearly illegal, that version of it. There are many versions that are legal that happen now. That's right. I mean, almost all the plastic pollution we see in the ocean and, you know, still in, in most urban areas like Southern California, you know, it's unsafe to surf or swim for 72 hours after it rains because so much pollution washes off our landscapes into the ocean. That's also one of these things we could definitely solve if we thought about the ocean not as a source for disposal, but, you know, something we 
should be protecting. We have a family that is very much checking those markers when it rains. Is it red? Is it red for my family of surfers over here, my kids? Yeah, that's right. You know, it shouldn't be that way. You sh- it should be clean after it rains and we should have a hundred you know, percent clean days in the ocean, not, you know, 70% or in some places, 50% down in Imperial Beach in San Diego, the beaches are close to half the year. Oh my God. Crazy. Yeah. You know, one thing I love because we are optimists here at New Atlantis very much, and you are too. And you say that the solutions exist, right? We, We know what to do. It's just a matter of getting people to do them. And so I want to talk about some of your big success stories. And I know you have some around plastics, but I'd love to hear some around ocean conservation. Sure. Um, yeah, no, I think anyone who's a conservationist or an environmentalist is an optimist, almost by definition. You can't do this work unless you believe that you can make change and that good things can happen. So, I, you know, I almost I feel like almost by definition, if you're doing this work, you've got to be an optimist. And I certainly am. And, you know, the work at Surfrider and watching the impacts occur and the successes we're having, you know, keeps me motivated. And I'll give you a couple examples. One, which was interesting, and it kind of also was one of those stories that impacted me as a kid in that same time period that I saw the guy dump the paint in the water, you know, I was 16, 17, I was free diving, snorkeling, scuba diving, spearfishing and fishing. And my buddies and I would go out off Laguna Beach to go spearfishing. And it was really hard to get any legal, edible, good fish to spear. And we'd go talk to the older lifeguards and say, what are we doing wrong? Why can't we catch any fish out here? And they would just say to us, well, it's fished out. Matter of factly, uh, you should have been here yesterday. We All the fish were caught in the 60s and 70s. So there's just none left. And Back then, I didn't know any better, so I just assumed, oh, I, I guess it's over. You know, we missed it. The abalone used to be four deep on the rocks, and the fish were out there, and it's just not that anymore. So it's sort of paradise lost. You know, now we know that things like marine protected areas and marine reserves can fix that. And um, in Laguna Beach, we've had a marine reserve now for the last decade, and the same places I was going in the 80s are almost unrecognizable today. They're full of fish, teeming with lobster. We used to see one sheephead, which is kind of a common kelp forest fish in, in Laguna, a summer. And now I can go out there on any clear day and see schools of dozens of them swimming around. And the establishment of the network of marine protected areas off the California coast was a incredibly contentious, long, took, you know, over 10 years to get done. But those those marine protected areas are, which are kind of patched up and down the coast, are working. And uh, 10 years, 12 years later, we're seeing, you know, just an unrecognizably sort of rich ocean compared to 30 years ago. I mean, that goes to your point that we know the solution. The solutions yeah. exist, which is leave the ocean alone, stop yep. destroying it, stop using it for our own benefits without any consideration for what we're doing for the ocean itself and all the creatures under the sea and then greater humanity, really. And that's right. It can fix itself. Yeah, it it really can. It has incredible, I think nature in general has incredible capacity to sort of restore and rejuvenate. And uh, if we stop treating it poorly. So that's just one example. But, But you know, Chad, you mentioned something there that 
I think we, I want to go into, which is that it was contentious. This wasn't, this is a hard fought battle to create these marine protected areas. And yes. so how do you get from the point? Because initially a lot of people think we're going to protect this and it's taking away from me because I am yeah. either making my living or deriving pleasure, whatever it is from this area. Now you are going to take it away from me. How do you change the conversation to say, actually, this is additive to everybody? Yeah, I mean, and that's certainly not the case. I was out surfing over this last weekend with a friend of mine I grew up with, you know, and he's like, when can we open this thing up again? I want to get out there and get the fish, you know, and I have, I lost friends over that effort who I grew up with because they're still mad about it. Well, so, you know, it's never, I don't think there's ever a perfect solution. You know, it was contentious because a variety of different fishermen, some individual recreational fishermen, some that run the recreational fishing outfitting businesses, some of the commercial fishermen. I have a friend who's a commercial lobster fisherman. Some of them were asked to give up their hobby or shift it. Some of them were, you know, asked to change their business. Mm -hmm. My understanding is they're all still in business. So, you know, this was another case where everyone thought they were going to go out of business or they claim they were worried about that. So, you know, and it was politically contentious because we were telling someone they couldn't do what they wanted to do in the places they wanted to do it. Other folks kind of understood that it had been fished out and we were seeing declines. And um, I was talking to another high school friend of mine who, you know, is an avid fisherman who supports the Marine Reserve because he under he was with me in the 80s and understood how bad it was. And, you know, I think 17% um, of California waters are in some sort of protected area. And I can't remember the exact number, but it's like three to 5% are in these no-take marine reserves. So it's quite a small portion of the um, total you know, area that you can fish or other things. But I think the success story of, and there's been other success stories in Australia, New Zealand, all over the world. I think this success story in California at least demonstrates that there's an upside to mm -hmm. these trade-offs. And, you know, we're seeing, you know, they, they talk about spillover too, which is this idea that these marine reserves will produce so much fish that they'll spill over the edges and that you can catch, you know, it'll, it'll improve fishing. And that hasn't really, at least not yet shown to be completely true, but you do see people fishing on the edges. So oftentimes you can see where the boundaries of these marine reserves are because the boats line the edges. And I think it is definitely shown to be true in other areas. Yes. The idea of spillover. Yeah. Spillover, yeah. And so whether you're seeing it here or not, it is, it's absolutely showing other places around the world. Okay, let's talk a little bit more about some of your successes. What are some of the things you're most excited about? Yeah, you know, there's sort of a couple others. We have a long historic battle at Trestles Surf Spot in California that was threatened by a six-lane private toll road in Orange County. We fought it for, for years and years and years, and it was going to destroy a state park, a campground, some of the best surfing in, in the world. Trestles is one a world-class surf spot. They hold the World Surf League's championship contest there every year or in many years. And um, this toll road was going to gut this watershed, pollute the surf spot, kill a bunch of important habitat, and we were able to stop it. You know, Arnold Schwarzenegger, governor at the time, was advocating for it. You know, and this is a road in traffic congested Orange County. It seems like a no-brainer. And uh, we were able to stop that project, which we're really proud about. And the reason why I think it was so significant is, you know, it was on the map. 
it was like a billion dollar project. It had government support. And a lot of people told us, you're never going to win. Don't even fight it. It's unwinnable. Why bother? You're just going to lose and embarrass yourselves. And, um, you know, one of my coworkers, uh, Matt McLean, who was a marketing guy at Surfrider at the time, you know, he kind of had this fist pounding moment in our office. He's like, we're the Surfrider Foundation. We're in San Clemente. If we don't fight to protect this surf spot, like why do we exist? And we all agreed with him and took on the fight and we ultimately won. And, you know, there was a state parks commission meeting, the most attendance in history of uh, state parks commission meetings. There was a coastal commission meeting, which is one of the permitting agencies. And, you know, thousands of people showed up. It was the largest coastal commission meeting in history. And then it went up to the U.S. Commerce Department that's above the coastal commission. And even more people came. And the general public, the surf industry, the surf brands were busing their, their employees for the day to come to these meetings. And um, it was a real testament to people power. And yep. that these, you know, if enough people care and enough people show up, despite long odds and people with more resources, you, you can win and prevail. What I find interesting about this is you keep talking about it as a surf spot, right? So a conservationist might think of this as we're protecting biodiversity in the ocean, we're protecting our coast. And you market it, at least in talking to me here, as we are protecting a surf spot, which I think is kind of brilliant. Yeah, well, you know, it's interesting. These A lot of surf spots are also sort of ecological gems, right? You have coral reef surf spots in Southeast Asia, which are breaking over these beautiful coral reefs, which are a biodiversity hotspot. In California, a lot of the premier surf spots are these river mouths, including trestles. And they're also biodiversity hotspots. You know, there's a seal coming up and down that creek. There's wetlands. Uh, there's, you know, these tidewater goby, which is an endangered species that are a wetland species. So there's a high correlation between these surf spots and biodiversity hotspots. And, you know, the success of the coalition actually that saved trestles, we were focused on the surfing and the surfers and getting them to care you know, we called this the Yosemite of surfing in California, and you could argue it is. There was an endangered habitats league was focused on a lot of the endangered species, which were there. The Sierra Club was in, focused on protecting access to nature and wildlife. The California State Parks Foundation was protecting the state park that was going to be destroyed. And so we kind of focused on all of the different interests who all share this place and, and see value in it. But I talk about it as a surf spot because that's, for my community, that's kind of what, uh, you know, it's like Yosemite is a national park. Right. But if you're a rock climber, it's Mecca, you know, and so that's kind of how we think about trestles. Right. And congratulations. And as a Californian, <laughs> Thanks, yeah. thank you. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> and you get the big thank you from, from us over here in my family as well for all the work that you've done. But you're constantly working on these coalitions. That's the beauty of surf riding. You're not out there doing it by yourself. That's right. I mean, you you really, it's hard to get anything done by yourself. And, you know, we we our particular strengths at Surfrider, you know, grassroots organizing and advocacy. But, you know, we partner with groups that are really strong in science or legal or lobbying efforts or have a different constituency that cares about an issue that's in parallel to ours, you know, like the California State Parks Foundation or Endangered Habitats League. And so if you can work together with folks, you know, you just can have a, a bigger impact. and It increases our likelihood of success. You're doing some great work right now around plastics that I'd love for you to talk about. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, 
the ocean is unbelievably polluted with plastics. You know, there's estimates there'll be more plastic than fish in the ocean by 2050. And it's everywhere. And there's talk of this Texas-sized island off the in the Pacific, but it's really more like a, you can't see it from space. It's more like a smog. It's everywhere. Uh, you know, it's concentrated in certain places. You know, and we're now finding at the top of Everest, Mariana's Trench, the deepest part of the ocean. It's in the rain. It's in our blood. It's in our lungs. It's everywhere. You know, so this is a, a problem that is impacting humans, I think, and the planet at sort of every level. And the ocean's taking the brunt of it because it's sort of at the bottom, right? Everything flows downhill until it gets to the ocean. You know, so it's collecting a lot of this stuff. So we need to change our relationship with plastics and how we use plastics. You know, I always say if you walk into the supermarket and you stand there at the entrance and you sort of survey from left to right, almost every single thing in that building is wrapped in a plastic. Mm. Mm-hmm. And so it just shows you how much of the stuff we're using. These single-use plastic items are the most egregious. This is the bag, the straw, the water bottle, the coffee cup, the wrapper for your, you know, snacks. And those are the things we find most commonly on the beach. When we do our beach cleanups, we also collect data on what we find. So we categorize what we pick up and put it in a centralized database. We do about a thousand beach cleanups a year and pick up a couple hundred thousand pounds of trash. So we have a pretty good sense of what's showing up on the beaches. And what's on the beach is interesting. It's a combination of what's washed down out of the watershed, but it's also what's washed up from the ocean. Yeah. You know, it's kind of a two-way thing, but it gives us a sense of what's out there. So we're like, all right, first things first, let's get rid of these single-use items. We use them for sometimes minutes, and then they last for thousands of years. It doesn't make any sense. And so we kind of started getting rid of single-use bags. That was kind of the first thing. Straws, foam, a lot of foam. That's one of the most commonly found items, which is coffee cups, you know, clamshell wrappers, coolers, all those things. And so we've been kind of chipping away at these items. More recently, we're either passing what we call comprehensive bills. We're getting rid of a bunch of those things at once. And the real advancement is, you know, it's kind of a wonky term, but extended producer responsibility. I essentially, love this. Love yeah, this. essentially polluter pays. So plastic, which is a fossil fuel, is too cheap. And so the manufacturers of a plastic product, bottle or a bag, it's so cheap for them to make that, that it's easy for them to just wrap in plastic and plastic and plastic. And we see this at the store, right? Everything's, you can sometimes find a potato wrapped in plastic or a banana, which is absurd. And if you think about it, you know, it costs them nothing, saves them some money because it keeps the product fresher or whatever. And then the minute you buy it, that becomes society's problem. So it's yours, then you have to dispose of it and you put it in your recycling or your trash can. Then you're paying to get that taken to some landfill. Then we're filling up a landfill and that's a whole problem unto itself. Or it's getting littered and ending up on the beach or some guy's driving up down the beach, emptying trash cans at the beach or it ends up in the ocean impacting wildlife. And so all those downstream effects are societies after that manufacturer made that cheap one cent bag Uh, We keep dealing with it over and over and over again through the course of its life cycle. And then it lives somewhere forever in the ocean or in a landfill. So the idea behind extended producer responsibility is a little bit like how Apple takes back your phone at the end. 
you know, the, we want the manufacturer of that bag to be responsible for that bag at its end life. And we think that will fundamentally change the equation. We'll make it more expensive for them so they won't be so reckless with how much plastic they produce. It should drive innovation in terms of thinking about how we package things more efficiently. Uh, like I, you know, like I was, we were laughing about before, not putting seven chips in a bag that we then have to deal with. Right. Hopefully it's all air. Die. Lots of plastic, yeah, lots of exactly. air, a few potato chips. Yeah. You know, I heard, I saw something recently, which I really thought was funny. It showed a picture of, you know, a bunch of plastic and bottles, like in a storm drain or in, a, in, in the ocean. It was like, you know, oil spill in disguise, right? It's just, mm. it's just this, you know, petroleum product turned into, um. into plastic. So these bills will ultimately, the companies will have to pay in for the plastic. It'll either promote cleanup but that increased cost will actually drive innovation, right? So hopefully they'll, maybe they'll use it, they'll invent a better plastic. Uh, they'll start using more recyclable plastics. We can close the loop and they'll package more efficiently. This is what we focus at New Atlantis on. We never priced destroying nature into our lives and the products we use, right? We just take yeah. it for granted that... I can get this plastic with no thought as to what the repercussions down the line are. And if I could actually put a price on that, yep. well, then we're living in a world that actually can survive. That's right. In, in economics, it's called an externality, mm -hmm. right? it's an external cost. And um, yeah, the companies producing this stuff profit and we pay the cost. And so we're trying to sort of restore that balance. So they have to be responsible for that cost. And um Maine, the state of Maine passed uh, a bill like this was the first one. California just last year passed a bill, the California Circular Economy and Recycling Act, that's going to start doing this. Um, New York is just, you know, a new bill in New York has been submitted. So we're just at the start of the process in the state of New York to do this. But we think this is the um, sort of a more comprehensive solution to actually changing the whole relationship we have with plastic. I think so too, because it is, it's one thing to get people to change behavior, individuals to change behavior. And you've done a lot of work on that and it's, we've come a long way, but it's hard, right? But if you have these big changes that then come down and affect everyone, it's a lot faster. That's right. And, you know, it's interesting because I believe that personal change is really important. Mm -hmm. And, um, we should all be doing our part. But, you know, there's also a fair amount of thinking, this is true for climate change too, is it's really convenient for the polluters to blame the individual. So, hey, it's not our problem, the producer of plastic, it's yours because you're not recycling or disposing of mm. it. Or, you know, hey, it's not our fault that the climate's warming because of all these fossil fuels. It's you because of your car and your, your plane flights. It kind of you know, absolves them of responsibility. And, and so, you know, in some ways, I think it's, we'll never solve the problem by individual change. We need big structural change. Individual change can play a role and it gives you agency. You know, if, if you're thinking about plastics in your daily life or your climate footprint, you're also much more inclined to get active on that issue and vote on that issue and get involved in advocacy. So I'd see them as interconnected. I do too. Yeah. Hey, Chad, the world has done a really great job over the last years. I mean, we can absolutely still do more, but has done a really good job in putting climate change 
into just sort of the discourse. So everyone understands climate change at this point in time, or it's talked about, of course, they're still deniers, but it is out there and people understand it much better than they did say 20 years ago. I think we are very far behind on understanding the role of biodiversity loss and the role of biodiversity loss for our planet and the way biodiversity loss interacts with climate change. So I just want to give you a pitch here to say, why is the ocean important? And I'm talking in particular about marine biodiversity loss, though it fits for everything. So I want to give you a second to, to just tell the audience, why is it important? Why is the ocean important? Yeah, you know, there's this Arthur C. Clarke, who's this, you know, famous science fiction writer. He has a a quote that says, you know, how inappropriate is it that we call this planet Earth when it's so clearly ocean? And he's right, right? It's 70% of the Earth's surface is is ocean. So it's really, we don't live on planet Earth. We live on planet ocean. And it's the dominant feature of the planet. It controls the weather. The ocean produces half the oxygen we breathe. A third of the protein eaten by people on the planet comes from the ocean. And 90% of the excess heat that we've pumped out into the atmosphere during the industrial age has been absorbed by the ocean and 30% of the carbon. So it's buffering climate change and sort of the amount of carbon in the atmosphere too. So I actually think it's everything. You know, we're land animals. So we, we, I guess we're a little bit more oriented towards you know, the smaller terrestrial part of the planet. So it is fundamental to the health of the planet and to the health of human existence on the planet. And the carbon balance of the planet has been, you know, relatively stable for most of human existence, millions of years. And, uh, you know, we're altering that. You know, there's billions of years of evolution of carbon sequestration through nature and it's the best solution. We're looking for all these tech fixes to, you know, sequester carbon. And the answer really is trees and soil and coral reefs and seagrasses and wetlands and mangroves. And, um, you know, there's this movement 30 by 30 to protect 30% of the planet. Uh, it's biodiversity by 2030, you know, and uh, a big focus on that outside of biodiversity and protecting nature, which benefits us in so many ways. It's also a climate solution. Mm-hmm. And you've done a lot of work studying this, and and so do we, but the planet is changing. There's no denying that the planet is changing. And the more biodiversity we have in the ocean, the stronger we are to survive this changing planet. That's right. The, the more uh, sort of diverse an uh, ecosystem is, the more resilient it is to, to impacts and to change and disturbance and, and, and everything else. And, you know, and so by protecting the biodiversity of the oceans and the planet, we're going to create a more resilient system. And, you know, we're learning, they call it blue carbon, right? These coastal and ocean ecosystems absorb five to 10 times the amount of carbon as rainforests. So wetlands, mangroves, seagrasses, not only are hotbeds of biodiversity and we're, you know, nurseries for a lot of marine life, they're also suck a lot of carbon out of the atmosphere if we can keep them healthy. All right. Well, you have a great organization where anyone can get involved. So how? What do we do? I love what you're doing. I'm listening to this podcast. I want to be part of Surfrider. What do I do? Yeah. You know, you can join as a member. It's five bucks. It's a Starbucks coffee. And, uh, you know, there's power in numbers. So, you know, part of our uh, success and advocacy is by having a lot of members out there. We have 50,000 now. I I don't think that's enough. You know, we should have more. 
180 million people go to the beach every summer. So some portion of that should sign up to be a member. Uh, and then you can go to volunteer.surfrider.org and uh, we list all of our volunteer activities. So, you know, as we were talking about, our chapter activities are fun. They're community building uh, and we really are making a big difference. So if you go to surfrider.org, you can find a way to join. You can find a local chapter and get involved as a volunteer. If you're a high school or college student, you know, we have 140 high school and college clubs around the country. So you can you can get involved either with the program on your campus and they're all listed on our website or, or start one at your school. So there's a bunch of different ways to get involved. I can guarantee you're going to make some great friends and you're going to make a difference. And the volunteer opportunities range from everything from going to a beach cleanup to going to Washington. That's right. Yeah. Usually, you know, you can commit an hour a month or you can get as involved as you want. And uh, we have ways to do that, you know, all across the spectrum. All right. Chad Nelson, thank you so much. I could talk to you for hours. I'm so impressed with the work that y'all are doing. I'm so grateful for the work that y'all are doing. And thanks. I hope that we get to keep working together. Yeah. Thanks so much for having me. And, you know, congrats on all the progress you're having at New Atlantis. Uh, it, was a, it was a pleasure to join you. everyone so much for listening today we'd love to stay connected with you so please follow us on twitter you can join our new atlantis labs conversation on discord or if you have a comment about this particular episode you can leave it on good pods you can find all those links in our show description see you next time